Today on Backroom Politics, breaking news out of D.C. The Supreme Court hears arguments around Proposition 8 and the ban on gay marriage. We have a budget deal. Well, sort of. The Senate passes the first budget bill in over four years, and the House has its own idea of what should be in it. But is that the end of the fight? Hey, did anybody mention that the president was in the Middle East this past week? We'll take a look at some of the successful and not-so-successful moments of the trip. Since they can't fight about budgets and spending, what can Congress fight about? Gun control. Yeah, guns are back up on the block, and they can argue about immigration reform. We'll take a look at what might be next on the horizon for immigration talks in Congress. This and Tell Me a Story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Capital. This is the best radio talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with kind of a skeleton crew this week. Uh, Congressman Al is out doing stuff for Easter vacation and spring break, so he's not joining us. But to my left is the former floor chief for the good Congressman Gerald R. Ford, former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here on a on a day that's not as snowy as it was yesterday. Oh my yeah. gosh! Yeah, yeah. The one day that the one government day. keeps open. Ha! <laughs> I got an idea. Let's have a full snowstorm. And to my twelve o'clock today, she is the former House Counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee. She is the presidential appointment to General Counsel for the U.S. Maritime Administration. She is Washington Insider Denise Crab. Hello, Denise. Oh, Justin, it's good to be here today. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So, and to my right, he is the former uh, Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is a longtime Senate staffer. He has served under last count four presidents. He is a very distinguished and senior fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Hey, gang. And joining us remote. Uh, is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is uh, Carl Tubin. Hey, Carl, happy Passover. Carl? Carl's Carl? here from Maryland. We lost <laughs> the connection momentarily. Well, let's, let's get started here real quick. We've got a lot to talk about. The breaking news coming out of Washington today, it's got everybody's headlines going, is today. Uh, the Supreme Court heard the argument uh, by the plaintiffs and the defendants in a case involving the California ban on gay marriage in that state, otherwise known as Proposition 8. Uh, it has gotten a lot of attention here in D.C. today. It is continuing to get a lot of attention long after the hearing uh, was recessed. But 
It calls into question so many issues. Is this a civil right? Is this an issue of states' rights? So many things to talk about. But, Bob, I'm going to start with you. Bob, before the show, you and I were talking a little bit about this subject. And let's look at the grander aspect of this. This is not a ban on gay marriage issue more than it's a state rights issue to govern itself. Is that accurate, or is there a broader brush to this? Well, the uh, the way that the way the case has come up, uh, we have to remind ourselves that the legislature in California several years ago uh, passed a law saying that uh, uh, basically banning gay marriage. basically banning gay marriage, and it went to the uh, no, no the honor. Sorry, okay sorry. hold on it was a referendum. Yeah. It was not their legislature. It was a referendum. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was an elect it was yeah. an election referendum on the state ballot. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Proposition eight. Right. Proposition eight, and the uh, and the they banned it, and uh, it has now come. We have a we have people from California who have been sued have been sued suing the case to the Supreme Court, and it's uh, it's a real question about. Uh, the state legislature is, and uh, what they can do, and the and the voters what they can do. Yeah. And the reality is that uh, it's uh, it's a very major question. Uh, Alan, well, what's your take on this? How do you how do you see this case going before the Supreme Court? Well, it's okay. There's, there there was an intervening step. So the, the Proposition Eight passed the California public, and California is known for having propositions of all types. Right. Not that hard to get on the ballot and. And, uh, and the, the public votes, and in this case, they voted 52 to 48, I think, in favor of defining marriage as between a man and a woman only. That case was appealed by Ted Olson and David Boyce, these two, this big Republican and big Democrat. Which, uh, which are strange bedfellows. He was a absolutely. two opposing counsel in Bush v. Gore, they, and now they're bedfellows. They joined up to take on that case, and in the, in the California Supreme Court, uh, the proposition was ruled unconstitutional under the state. And then in federal court, in the court of appeal, went to the court of appeals. It was also ruled that the proposition itself unconstitutional. That's what brings it to the Supreme Court. The fact that there is a a a, a court that has said this proposition is unconstitutional. Does the federal constitution speak to this? The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter, and uh, it, it, we all know that. There's enormous rapid movement in the public's feelings about gay marriage. Um, what, what, what we don't always remember is that when a court, when a, when a, when a question comes before the Supreme Court, it's not like the legislature. It's not a popularity contest. It's often very, very narrowly considered under whatever the law is, and so. It's not a matter of the Supreme Court saying, "Oh yeah, we're for gay, gay marriage," or "Oh no, we're not." It's it's the parameters of the decision, and and in the, they argued the case this morning, and observers of the court who were present said, "Interesting signals, probably the, the single the most important signal." But remember, these are all highly speculative and often wrong. Was there seemed little sentiment to go big, right? on a decision to, for example, not only embrace gay marriage rights, but go national with it. Right. There seemed virtually no visible sentiment to that effect. And, and so I think if, if one is going to guess at what the court will do, it will be, it won't do that. Well, several sources have quoted at least one 
uh, Supreme Court justice who even made the suggestion that they wish to dismiss the case, that it, it's just too that, – that they should revert back to the appellate court ruling as being – you've got two subsequent supporting rulings saying that this is unconstitutional. One justice says, we don't even need to hear this. Why was this even before us? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. What, remember what happens when 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 uh, the the court gets petitions to consider a case. Right. And then if there are, I think four justices who say, yeah, let's consider it. Um, there were at least four who said let's consider it. And one justice, and it's Justice Kennedy, who's often the uh, the swing justice these days, said, I'm not even sure why we're considering the case. And it's not because they want to judge the merits, but there's a whole question of what's called standing here, which can often be a kind of a technicality, is the group that brought the case, does it really have standing to bring the case before the Supreme Court? And in this case, the group that is supporting the Proposition 8 are major sponsors of Proposition 8. They're not, they're not per se the, a, a group of citizens or some wronged party, and and, and the, the court has it within its power if it wants to to say they don't have standing. We are not going to hear the case. It reverts to the court of appeals decision, which leads which which, which overturns proposition, proposition eight. Denise Krupp, you you are a uh, bar attorney, uh, so we're going to go to you. As is Bob Hines. Well, I don't even know what bar I'll have you anymore, Bob. But I don't either. When, when, Denise, when when you look at the argument that Justice Kenny. Uh, kind of hinted to in his comments as far as maybe even wishing to dismiss the case. Does the plaintiff in this case, those supporting Proposition 8, have standing before the court in this instance saying, look, we are an aggrieved party. We represent the electorate of the, we, we represent the people that put Proposition 8 forward. We also represent the electorate of California. We are a group of citizens that wish to keep gay marriage banned, is there legal justification for them to have a hearing in this case, or is this something that Justice Kennedy might might be on board with? Well, I, I guess for me the question is, when you start talking about uh, who they are representing, uh, we're forgetting that a lot of the money that was in support of Proposition 8 came from outside of the state of California. So if you're going to look at this and you're going to tell me that you were the one who supported this, then can you tell me you are a bunch of California citizens, or are you going to tell me that you're from non-California area? Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, this is a really a, an odd situation there because it's the law of the land in California. 5248 uh, proposition was passed in the state of California. It's being challenged. Typically, it would be up to the state to say, that's the law here. We will defend it. In this particular case, the state of California, with Governor Jerry Brown, said, you know, we're not going to defend it. Right. Which is a really curious and interesting question of its own, uh, in, in its own right. But it's not, is it really any different than, than the, what the president has done as far as defensive marriage act? We'll get to that. Yeah, to the okay. It's a very interesting <laughs> parallel yeah. right. where the law of the land, or in this case the law of the state, is in effect being becoming an orphan because the, uh, the 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 governor says no, and apparently there's some precedent for this. And the precedent says that if the state declines to defend the law of the land, the advocates of what became the law of the land are allowed to stand instead of 
the state. So I'm guessing that 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 they won't go that road, but I don't know. But Carl Tubin, I mean, you've been around state politics for a long time. This has got to be a very unique situation from a state political standpoint. It's a balance between you have a, an administration and Governor Jerry Brown that does not wish to uh, hold up as plaintiff in support of Proposition 8, but it also is saying, hey, look, we're willing to relinquish state rights in this instance and let the federal court decide. Well, I don't think that's I don't think that's so bad. I mean, uh, Jerry Brown uh, opposes probably opposes uh, the proposition at this point and uh, wants to see it go away. And uh, the way to do that is is exactly what he's doing. Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting in some of what I heard this morning is that Justice Scalia talked about something uh, in it about. Uh, I can't remember his exact words, but Kennedy came in and said, "Well, don't you think? Don't you?" He 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 said the the children of these couples uh, want their families to stay together and to to be whole. And I and uh, uh, I thought it was very interesting that Kennedy brought up that point. Well, Bob, when, when we when we do look at this as as a state right, I mean, there's there's a sidebar item to this, as saying that the the appellate courts almost look to the federal government as being the de facto authority. As hey, look, marriage is possibly inherently a civil right. It is a legal union between two people confirmed in a religious ceremony. This is a very tight rope that the federal government and state governments are walking right now. Is that accurate? Well, you know, uh, I would say that's true. And I think that because there are so many conflicting views here, uh, that it's probably likely that the court will look for a, not a broad decision, but a relatively narrow decision. I mean, think about it. Uh, there is nothing in the Constitution about this. Uh, the Constitution specifically says anything not enumerated as authority of the federal government belongs to the states. And for all our history, the, uh, the all the state governments oh, have the authority with respect to uh, you know marriage laws, uh, family laws, uh, you know, yeah. estate laws, all the things that go within a family relationship. And this is this is we're now moving into an area that is uh, somewhat new. But when when we when we look at the area, though, I mean, Denise Krepp, one could make the assumption that the intent of the Civil Rights Act of 1968 would come into play here, even though it does not call out, uh, you know, discrimination against sexual orientation. Some are saying that it is the intent of the law to include and encompasses sexual orientation, just as it may include discrimination against gender, uh, just as it does against religious preference. And does that have standing in the grand scope of this, or are we swinging for the fences? I I think we're swinging for the fences, because to say to the straight face that we were including in 1968 issues regarding uh, sexual orientation is very hard to believe because in 1968, most of the folks were still in the closet. 
Now, if I think, you know, if we're going to start talking about the Constitution, other issues that have not been in the Constitution have been considered by the Supreme Court. Those are including abortion as well as uh, interracial marriages. And, and that's where I was well, going. There's a, there's a precedent case out of Virginia that calls in the Lovett. question. Yeah, right, the Lovett case. They they inherently say that, wait a minute, this is a civil right, and you cannot discriminate against that. But, Alan Moore, it seems like the court doesn't want to take that route, or it's hesitant to possibly take that route. I I think one's got to be careful of overdrawing that parallel. Race is one thing, and and what what, uh, Brown v. Board of Education, what a whole host of of Supreme Court cases, including the loving uh, interracial marriage case, it was about race. It was a man and a woman of different races. This is different stuff, as Denise said. Well, why, why is it different stuff, though? This is, this, this is a, a potential policy that would go against, if you will, a few thousand years of tradition and hundreds of years of behavior in this country. It is changing fast. States are stepping up, granting civil union rights, gay marriage rights, or not. And and the states are moving rapidly. The public is moving rapidly. It is not up to the court, arguably, to simply reinterpret the Constitution in some way to reflect what's going on in the country. And, and, and it's really interesting. Justice Ginsburg, uh, just last year, commented on this this broad issue regarding the Roe v. Wade decision in which she, a a pro... Uh, staunch uh, pro-life. No, 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 no. No, a staunch pro-choice. Oh, pro-choice, right. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Justice felt that the court may well have overstepped its bounds back in 1972 in the, in the Roe v. Wade findings. Sometimes you there are issues that you need to leave to legislatures and the public and as, as, as Bob said before, that in the Constitution that says rights not enumerated for the federal government are left to the states. And the states were doing that in terms of expansion of abortion rights. The, the Supreme Court leapfrogged what the states were doing. And we've been fighting about that ever since. Bob Hines. Alan, I think, has touched on exactly what I think that is likely to happen. I mean, it's. This is something that is relatively new as a public issue, uh, and I think that it the I think that the population of the country, particularly the younger people, and of course there are more of them all the time, and they're the ones who are in effect more actively interested in something like this as opposed to old geezers like me. The fact of the matter is, I think the country's basic philosophic thinking on this subject is moving in the direction of it's a fine idea. People want to have uh, interracial marriage. Fine. They want to have uh, uh, same-sex marriages. Fine. Nobody has any problem anymore. Less and less there's a difficulty. I think that's one of the reasons that because it would be so difficult for the court to try to write something right now that would be widely accepted is probably going to be a, 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 a solution that they do not reach for. I think they're probably going to want to go want to go some direction in the way of pointing what the future can be and op- an opportunity for this for the for the public to continue to move as they are in a more uh, open way, if you will, a, a broader acceptance. 
than we've had in the past. I expect that to be the case. I also expect the court not to say you must do it this way. Everybody who wants to, any gay couple wants to get married any place in the country, no matter what the state, state says, can go ahead and do it. But we're, we're now getting into almost not so much a, a gay marriage versus not gay marriage, but we're now, Denise Crap, it sounds like getting in federalist versus a constitutional originalist versus an interpretive constitution living, breathing document issue. Uh, where, where does the Supreme Court, in your opinion, because trying to handicap the Supreme Court is like trying to predict Florida Gulf Coast University winning the national title. But, I mean, but if you were to take a look at this, where do you think that the court's going to fall in this if you were to handicap it right now? Federalist versus non-federalist. If I was to handicap it, I would say on the state case, they're going to revert back to the appellate court and say this is a state issue. You're going back on that side. With the Defense of Merit Act, I think they're going to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act. And I think they're going to overturn the Defense of Marriage Act because they're going to broadly interpret and say that um, times have changed. They're not going to use that word. They're not going to use that phrase. But they're going to somehow hint at that. And they're going to tie in loving and they're going to tie in a couple of other cases. Are are we seeing a transition, Ellen Moore, to a more less, or not more, but a less federalist ideal regarding the Constitution? Are we going to see it more as a living, breathing document as opposed to an, or, an originalist standpoint from the court's view? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's, that, that, that that's really the question here. You've got, you've got this, fundamentally, this fundamental inconsistency. On the one hand, you've got some justices who are saying, let legislatures, let elected officials make these major policy decisions. Let's not twist and turn and, and reform the, the Constitution to fit our feelings of the moment. Uh, and yet, in this particular case, you've got a, the potential of, of, of the justices reaching again, even, even the conservative justices saying, we're going to overturn what legislatures are doing. And, and it, it all depends. You know, the, 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 the role of the court shifts around advocates' views shift around. We want an activist court on the stuff we care about. We don't want an activist court on the stuff that we don't like. Um, this is just another one of those examples. Now, we did talk about Defensive Marriage Act. That will be argued tomorrow, tomorrow. In, in the court. And, and, and that is a federal law that basically, if you will, ignores what states are up to because it says that we don't care what you states do regarding regarding um, gay marriage, your marriages are not going to qualify for federal benefits. But Bob Hines, is this, this, this sounds like that Supreme Court may have painted itself into a really awkward corner. Is that is that well, true? Well, what painted them into a corner is the Defense of Marriage Act, with the, the federal government deciding that that's the only marriage that anybody can have, and it I mean, it has. There's no federal rationale for being in that field. I mean, it's it's hard to understand how how they got there. In my mind, it seems to me that it's always been a state issue. Uh, it belongs there. When you, it seems to me that uh, that is going to be overturned. I think that law will be thrown out. Alan Moore. Yeah, actually, I I I think it may well be overturned, but not because the federal government has no business there. There are a host of benefits, tax benefits, retirement benefits, 
that accrue to married couples, and it's federal resources that are devoted to to reward, if you will, marriage. And the feds have the right, it seems to me, to decide what that means. Is it open sesame? Anybody that, that, that claims to be married can can get can capture those benefits? I think the feds do have uh, a legitimate role in the business. That does not mean it's constitutional to well, or automatic. Declare what, a, what a marriage is. Well, wait, wait. Denise, you disagree. Firstly, I, I think the Defense of Marriage Act came about because of what Clinton did in the first round of saying that gays can be in the military and can be in the military openly. So I think that was the reaction to it. The second part, though, is when you start talking about um, federal benefits, Alan's right. I mean, it, it's not just civilians, but it's also military. I mean, when you have a, a, a group, and this happened in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg, where a uh, there was a lesbian couple, um, and the spouse wanted to join the officer's wives club, and she was told no. Okay. Now, wait a second. You're told no after you're being told your spouse can participate in the military actively. I mean, it's not a, you know, a federal benefit, but it's those types of benefits that are important to those that don't have them right now. For me, this will always be a civil rights issue because of that. Uh, Bob Hines, at the end of the day, are, is this going to fall back to Congress to say, look, we're going to at least back away. We're not going to do another DOMA. We're just going to let this go back to the states. Can Congress uh, restrain itself from getting involved in this discussion? I think they have enough of problems in front of them right now without voluntarily to pick up another one. I don't think they'll, they'll no matter what the courts do, I don't, I don't they don't, unless the, unless the Supreme Court would do something that would uh, say you gays can't be married, it's illegal. I think then the Congress might get upset. But I can't imagine anything like that happening. And I think the Congress will stay out of this issue and and let you know. Quite frankly, I think things are moving in society constantly in the direction of more more uh, acceptance, more openness and feeling comfortable with this kinds of relationships. And it's, it's happening all the time. It continues to. I think that's good. Alan Moore. I think it's dumb to try to put the Congress into it. Well, it, yeah, except that this was a congressional law. Um, the, the ideal way to fix this would have been to throw DOMA out years ago because the law is an abomination in, in, in my judgment. But one can understand where it came from and, and how, how it came to be. Um, but but it, rather than have the court come in all of these many years later, I mean, it's like 17 years later, and say, oh, yeah, that thing over there, unconstitutional. It's not that old. And, and the ideal way would have been for the Congress to say, you know that law we passed and a number of members who voted for it are now saying, I was wrong then, it should be changed. Well, then, then they ought to change it. Now, having said that, said that, as Bob says, they're, they're pretty busy on other things. This is not the issue they want to jump into. If for some reason uh, the court simply decides, you know something? <laughs> we, we often talk about respecting the legislature. And this is an ancient history. This is 1996, I think. Um, we don't like this law, but we are going to respect it and encourage the Congress to go back and change it. Um, that would, that's not an illegitimate position for them to take. It, it, it would be a very disappointing for, for the, the people who 
who hate the law, including me. <laughs> but but it wouldn't be illegitimate, it seems to me, for the court to say, we hate this. But they passed it overwhelmingly, right. and the president signed it. If they don't like it, we don't. A lot of people don't. America's changing. Then change that law. Right. Well, we're going to go ahead, Bob Hines. Last thought. It's illegal for the Congress uh, to change the, its salary during, you know, for a, any term. Right. The way it strikes me that if the if the court sent it back to the Congress to fix it, I think they they threw it out and said do something. I think the Congress would probably pass law cutting the salary of the judges in half. <laughs> Good point. Uh, well, we're, we're going to keep an eye on this. If we do get uh, some sort of, which I doubt we'll get some sort of an opinion today, but we'll keep an eye on this going forward. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit of international affairs. The president was in a Middle East road trip last week. We're going to talk about how successful or unsuccessful that trip was. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Oh, by the way, happy birthday, Tara Ramsey. Uh, we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best known brands and some that you might even know but you might want to give it a try everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno you can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City they have a cigar for everybody mild, medium, strong, heavy however you want to smoke it it's available here at Shelly's Back Room come in, have Bob, Na or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening again, Shelly's Back Room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington, D.C. as Bob likes to put it it is definitely the place to be you can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town yeah.
Hey, uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And uh, this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the president's road trip to the Middle East last week. Uh, president Obama spent some good quality time in Israel. He spent some time with the Palestinians. Uh, also spent time with King Abdullah in Jordan. Uh, joining us for this segment, he is our international contributor. He is the vice president of China Affairs for the Eurasia Center. He is Dr. Ralph Winnie. Ralph, how you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be on with everybody. I appreciate having, a, having you come on. Hey, uh, Ralph Winnie, uh, in your take, what were some of the highlights of the president's trip last week? Well, I think what's, what was very interesting is that um, as Obama begins his second term, China he's adopted an approach that one school of past U.S. diplomats um, was hoping that he would have advocated during the first term. Um, what, he's, what he's tried to do is to uh, embrace the Jewish people through acknowledgement of their ancient history, threatened security, and thriving democracy before demanding politically costly sacrifices from its leaders. Um, this was a tact that was endorsed um, during Obama's first term by Dennis Ross, but it placed him at odds with the president's former Middle East peace envoy, former Maine Senator George Mitchell, who had asked first for Israeli concessions before getting Arab nations to demonstrate support for the Jewish state. So I think what's important on this trip now is that um, you have a deeply suspicious Israeli public that are receiving Obama warmly because they appear, he appears to be empathizing with their situation in terms of uh, security in the Middle East. But at the same time, Obama is trying to demand politically costly um, sacrifices from from the Israeli people and the leadership in order to to put forth a lasting peace or create a lasting peace in the region. Because if you talk with people overseas, they've always felt that the key to solving the problems in the Middle East is solving the Israeli-Palestinian situation. And that that is going to mean um, both sides willing to sacrifice uh, contested land and legal claims in order to have um, true peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Carl Tubin, the, the, the president's had, for lack of a better term, a tumultuous uh, relationship with uh, both Shimon Peres, but more so with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, there's also been kind of an arm's length embracement of the Israeli public with President Obama. Did this trip change anything in the eyes of the Israeli people, do you think, Carl? I think so. Uh, <clears throat> I think the way he handled himself uh, in Israel, uh, <clears throat> if there was one picture where on the arrival ceremony where he had his hand uh, on the back of uh, of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh he was he was given the the highest honor that can be given a person uh, by the Israeli government um <clears throat> that was well covered he gave a speech to to young people and he kind of stopped in the middle of his speech and had lived the fact that he had spoken uh that afternoon to three or four uh, young Arab uh, uh, children and uh, had talked to them. And then he kind of said, you know, he said, I think that the Israeli parents uh, would want the same for those Arab children as they do for their own. 
and he kind of got into the heart and soul of of some of the young people, and I think changed a lot of minds. Um, <clears throat> uh, so I thought, I thought all in all, the trip was a very good trip for the Alan president. Moore. Alan Moore. Um, this was the foreign version of President Obama's charm offensive, uh, the one that he had gotten <laughs> so much uh, press for here going up to the Hill. He, uh, he After completely messing up uh, the relationship with Israel in the first four years and then ultimately ignoring them, after criticizing President Bush and saying, boy, we're not going to wait until later. We're going to get with it now. And then he offended them uh, four years ago uh, in, in Cairo about on, on the issue of settlements and then uh, and then two years later, um, hit him, hit him again. Um, this was a trip that was all about, about trying to bind up the wounds. He had very low expectations, very low ambitions. I would say mission accomplished. Uh, but Bob Hines, uh, when you look at the public perception of the relationship between the U.S. and Israel here in the United States, uh, it's largely viewed as we're going to have Israel's back. That's not necessarily been the all-out frontal message coming out of the White House under this administration. Uh, in order for us to truly be part of the talks in creating a recognized Israeli state and solving the Middle East peace problem, does the administration have to get more aggressive in dealing with the Palestinians as either observer status in the UN or as a legitimate recognized state with full diplomatic recognition? I'm not sure what the first step should be or how they should be structured. But I think that the president did a, a number of things in the Middle East that were, that were very useful. Alan touched on them a great deal, and I won't repeat them. But the fact of the matter is he did some things there that were really, really very important. And we haven't touched on one, and I want to just touch on it because I think this may be, in the long term, maybe one of the most significant things he did. What's that? telephone call between the president uh, of, of Turkey and Mr. Ya Mr. Netanyahu, because they weren't, they haven't talked to each other since a couple of years ago when the Israelis fired on a ship. On a Turkish flag Tur ship. Turkish flag ship, bringing supplies and food and whatnot into Gaza, and there were some armed people on that, on that boat, but they, they, they killed, the, the Israelis fired on the ship, killed some people. Turkish citizens and the Turks just cut the you know the relationship between Israel and themselves off. And one of the best things that, that is, has been for of good judgment in the Middle East has been a strong relationship between a Muslim nation, Turkey, and the Israelis. And they've had a very good relationship for a number of years. And Netanyahu refused to apologize for what happened uh, in that shooting several years ago. And uh, I think one of the best things that happened in the Middle East in the last week and a half, and, and for the future, bode well for it, is the ability of the president to get Netanyahu and President Erdogan together talking and visiting and beginning to and, – and Netanyahu apologizing. Right. Well, and, and in that same aspect, it was kind of a buried story in, in the foreign uh, policy sections of, of the Washington Post. But Turkey and Israel reestablished diplomatic relations – and, and and reestablish their embassies in each capital. I capital. think that's hugely important in the Middle East. Uh, Denise, when when we look from a security standpoint, uh, one of the first things President Obama did walking off the Air Force One was walking across the tarmac 
at Ben Gurion Airport over to a Iron Dome unit stationed there at the airport and getting his picture taken with the entire unit. What kind of signal does that send to the Middle Eastern countries saying, hey, look, see what we did? Welcome to our world. Was that a smart move by Obama? It was a smart move. I mean, in the Middle East, um, there is uh, strong placement on pictures, strong placement on symbolism. And uh, it's my hope that he knew what symbol was that he was sending people and saying, we're here and we're a power. But I'd also like to go back to Turkey. And the reason I, I want to go back also to Turkey is that the Turks and the Ottoman Empire were a significant player for hundreds of years. And not only were they player for hundreds of years, but their influence in countries, into Europe as well as into the Middle East, is still there, via the buildings that are there, via the history that they had. And we need an example like Turkey when we have others that are folding or not doing as well to say we can have a successful Muslim-led country that can have good relationships with the United States and can have good relationships with Israel. We need others to see that so they can emulate the example that Turkey is and can be. Very valid point. Uh, Ralph Winnie, when, when I, I want to go back to the Iron Dome situation. Uh, yeah. There were some foreign press sources that said that it was uh, basically a slap to the face to many Muslim leaderships uh, in that region by him going out there and going right over to an Iron Dome unit. Uh, is that being perceived well internationally right now, Ralph Winnie? Well, you're, you're correct. Obama publicly endorsed Israel's right to defend itself and pledged continuing U.S. financial support for the Iron Dome. Um, I, I think the, the key from the international perspective is you have to solve the Israeli-Palestinian situation uh, because that is what's creating all the tension and the violence in, in the region. And so the Palestinians have a, a place that they can call their home. And so they have a recognized state. You're going to continue to have um, ongoing uh, security issues uh, between Israel and the Palestinians. And I think what's interesting in, uh, in Obama's uh, second term now, uh, now that he's, in, he's gone to is Israel, um, he, he, along with, Secret uh, with Secretary of State Kerry, is going to push both the Israelis and Abbas um, towards a single, single comprehensive deal rather than haggling over pre-negotiation conditions such as a settlement freeze. If you recall during, um, during Obama's first administration, um, he backed Abbas's demand that Israel stop settlement con construction on land occupied in the 67 Arab-Israeli War as a precondition before the, um, the Arabs would come to the table to negotiate with the Israelis. Now what Obama is, is encouraging the Arabs the, to do is to drop that condition and return to the table and put forth a comprehensive um, uh, plan so that um, there will be a Palestinian state in the near future. Uh, moving on to the dialogue with the Palestinians, uh, President Obama made it a point to engage the Palestinian uh, Authority uh, in, in, in talks about the peace process. Uh, there has been discussion that, you know, pretty much a, a hammer or a line was drawn saying, look, You've got to come back to the table on both sides that in order for this to truly be successful, 
uh, Bob Hines, the president is literally pushing this as a main point foreign policy agenda going forth into a second term. Can the president be successful in getting them, if not back to the table, to at least settle some of the old scores? I suppose the answer to that is from your mouth to God's ear. I mean, literally, it's very, very hard uh, to find ways that, you know, when you get somebody who wants to talk and wants to negotiate, that's one thing. But the preconditions that, that each side has always had makes it awfully difficult. And can we hope so? Yes. Are there, reason, are, are there carrots we can use? Yes. Uh, is it going to be enough to, uh, to get people back to the table again? Let's hope. Alan Moore. When, when the president went over there, his popularity in, in Israel was about as, uh, the level of popularity of, of the Congress and the American public. It was really, <laughs> really low. And he, and he clearly helped himself by simply, A, showing up, and then, B, giving a good speech. Uh, he annoyed the Knesset because he didn't give the speech there, but that's okay. That, 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 that's important in Israel. The Knesset is totally annoyed we, anyway. We don't really care about that, but he, he, he spoke to largely this group of university students, but with, with a, a national uh, television audience. The, I don't see any problem with him going out to... Iron Dome, because that's a defensive weapon. If it was an offensive weapon, it would be a different thing. But he, he would, the, the symbols were all about Israel. They, what he really wanted and hoped for and did not get from the trip was some agreement from both sides of a date in the future where they would get together. The Turkey thing was very important. That was obviously put together over Long recent before. months. You don't just pick up the phone, have the other guy there, and then and then reestablish diplomatic relations within 24 hours. I have no problem with that. It was important. It was long overdue, and I'm glad it happened. But we ought not to think that that was some, you know, some some miracle conception that occurred during his trip. But the this, big thing he wanted didn't happen. Then he's cracked. I think we need to be looking at this picture of the Israelis versus the Palestinians in a different manner. And, and the reason I say that is. We need to be focusing on jobs. There is a high unemployment factor in both the Palestinian community and some parts of the Israeli community. And to my mind, if you find people jobs, they're going to focus more on their jobs than other issues. So the next time we have a president that goes over, or the next time another president from another country goes over, they need to be bringing businesses with them and saying, we will invest in your countries and we will give you the jobs so that your people will be employed. If you're a employed, you're not going to be spending as much time on the street agitating. Well, Carl Tubin, that brings up a very interesting point, though. When you, when you look at the American involvement in in Israel, it's been largely through foreign aid, but we, we rarely see business delegations getting top-tier coverage going over there and saying, look, we want to invest in Israel. Hey, we may even want to invest in Palestine, is that something that, if brought to the table, might bring the Palestinians and Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli government together? You know, it's <clears throat> my mother said years and years ago that if uh, if there ever could be a peace treaty between the uh, Israel and 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 the Arabs, the Palestinians here, that you know Israel could help make their deserts bloom, 
give them industry, give them all kinds of things. And because of the fact that they hold back and because of the fact that negotiations in two situations have failed in the last minute, and I was talking to Dennis Ross about that, and he said it's because the Arafat was afraid that if he if he came to a complete agreement that he would be assassinated. So, you know, uh, hopefully uh, Israel, Israel prospers. Israel has tremendous uh, technology which has been shared with the United States and partnered with the United States. And the same things could be true if the two groups get got together and signed a peace treaty. Uh, you know, it, the same thing could happen with the Arabs and the Israelis. And, and trade-offs could be made, trade could be done. There's, everybody would prosper from this and, and, and finally have some uh, stability in, in the area. Uh, Bob, Bob Hines, let's move on a little bit to the president's sidebar trip to Jordan. Uh, King Abdullah has got his own little Arab Spring issues that he's dealing with. An economy that at one time was one of the most prosperous in the region is having their own little economic downturn. And the, uh, the grip that the royal family, although very liberal in their government, uh, is waning a little bit. It does, does the diminished power in King Abdullah cause us a little bit of concern? And is Obama showing up in Jordan as support for King Abdullah going to help either eliminate that uh, decrease? Well, the biggest problem I think Abdullah has right now is he's got tens of thousands of, of, of uh, refugees from Syria, and uh, you know that, and, and that's you know they are they're an unstable group, uh, and he and as you as you probably are aware, uh, the there are his the population the normal population in this country is about half Palestinian to begin with. And uh, so it's it's always been a uh, uh, you know he, he his father before him has always been a very uh, tenuous balancing act in order to keep everything flowing there keep everything peaceful and and, and uh, relatively comfortable and and uh, he's I think he's doing a pretty good job and I'm pretty sure the president uh, not only uh, went there to see him and be seen with the president uh, with the king but I think he probably also probably said something useful about uh, some anything we can do for you and what is it and tell me I'll get it done because I think I think if they don't do anything else they can use they can pop you know they only that's that's the only country in the in the Middle East that doesn't have any oil besides Israel right so I suppose he probably was he was probably happy to get some support from the president and I'm sure there there are we will be trying to at least help him with respect to supporting the the the, the, the survival of all those those Syrian uh, uh, res- uh, refugees, who, who I understand is something like 25,000. That's a lot of refugees in a country as small as uh, as Jordan. Does does the thought of King Abdullah losing power scare the State Department and his administration, <laughs> Alan Moore? Absolutely, it does. That's why we spend so much money uh, propping up uh, uh, that that government, financing that government, uh, the way we do with Israel and Egypt. And in terms of the refugee problem, I think it's at least ten times what you were saying. I think it's 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 well over a couple of hundred thousand. Oh my God! Yeah. It, it is it is just a massive undertaking, and the and, and the U.S. and the and, and other nations of the world are paying for it. Um, 
and and uh, and hoping against hope that something will happen that will that will bring down uh, President Assad, stop the killing of tens of thousands of people that has occurred, um, putting the United States in this horribly awkward position that as we're in over and over and over again. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Do we intervene? Do we prop up rebels? Do we give them arms? Do we do overflights? Do we shoot things out of the air? Um, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And we, we need places like, like or, or, or allies like, uh, like, like uh, uh, King Abdullah to help buy us time and to provide at least a sanctuary and, and a little bit of stability in this really, really, really difficult area. You know, in, in during President Obama's uh, round in, in Jordan, he did again call for Assad to step aside. And this is literally a week after uh, intelligence reports were leaked. It has not been confirmed by Langley that chemical weapons have been used in the Syrian conflict. There's no determination of who, in fact, initiated those attacks, if they are real. But it does come into question, though, Denise Krepp, from a security standpoint, if, if the president's there in, in, in Amman, Jordan, talking with King Abdullah and calling for Syrian leadership to step down with the access to chemical weapons, does that not lend us the opportunity to say now might be the time that we get more engaged, whether it's additional drone flights, additional support to uh, leadership in the region to get Assad out of power? We're heading in that direction. Uh, the question is going to be if we do go in, and by we I mean the United States, because let's face it, nobody else is going in there with us because nobody else has our assets, then what are we doing at the cost of for something else? I mean, we seem to be heading into Syria. We seem to be heading into Africa. We seem to be heading into China. You know, how are we doing all of this, and how are we going to balance it out against the other needs that we have as a nation? So my guess right now is that they're doing some political calculations of how do we move this stuff, how long will it take us, and how much is it going to cost us if we decide to do this? Well, Carl Tuvin, one of the subjects that we didn't hear about a lot in the president's trip to the Middle East, it was only sprinkled minorly through a lot of the discussions, was the issue of a nuclear Iran. Uh, are you surprised that it didn't take a bigger stage, especially in the talks with uh, the Israeli government and Benjamin Netanyahu? I think I think it I, it was. I mean, it might not have been covered as as you we might have wanted it covered, but it, Netanyahu and and the president had talks about that and seemed to come to agreement on on what the policy would be. Now. It was never stated what the policy would be, but it, it they they did talk they did discuss it in their meetings, and I think came to uh, to some agreement. Uh, Ralph Whitting, I want I want to give you the uh, final word for this segment. Looking at it from a, uh, a global aspect, in the international community, how successful was this trip for Obama? Uh, I I think it was. Uh fairly successful because he's getting the ball rolling in trying to uh, put together an Israeli-Palestinian peace accord. But um, there's still a lot of hope and skepticism. I mean, if you talk to the young students at Hebrew University, um, they 
they want lasting peace, but they're very concerned that a Palestinian state um, could lead to um, more terrorist attacks on their country. So what Obama is going to have to do, he's going to have to turn this mix of hope, skepticism, and uh, into a plan of action where he can get both sides to sit down and carve out a comprehensive peace plan that would um, ensure territorial integrity and security boundaries are respected. And, the, and when you when you mention Jordan, I think King Abdullah has a great fear um, that he, he could be overthrown by um, these refugees pouring into his country. It almost happened to his father over 30, 35 years ago, and that's something that uh, the U.S. government is going to be watching very closely. Uh, very good, very good. Well, we're going to we're going to let that be the final word on this segment. Uh, Dr. Ralph Winnie, thanks for joining us at Always, and Carl Tubin, I believe. You have a uh, an engagement this evening, and you're going to be departing us, correct? Yes, I am. Thank oh. you. Well, Carl, hey, I, want wish, I, want to, I want to wish everyone there a happy Easter. And, yeah. and happy Passover to you. Happy High Holy Days. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be Thank talking you. about uh, we're going to be talking about budget deals, and not so much budget deals, but we're going to be talking about what's coming up next on the fiscal discussions here in Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom. By the way, it's happy hour. We're going to order our drinks, order our cigars, and take it home in the second hour of Backroom Politics. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water or... Whether it's something elaborate, like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Highland Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or, heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. Capital, Washington, D.C., for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Uh, hey, we're going to talk, because, you know, it can't be Backroom Politics without some fiscal crisis talk. And wait a minute, we kind of, sort of, may have some sort of deal that'll get us through uh, the end of the fiscal year. But depending on who you're talking to, uh, Democrat or Republican, they still have stuff to argue about. First, let's talk about the Senate side. Uh Alan Moore, we have a Senate budget proposal that would take us through the end of the year, uh, the first budget bill passed in four years, and as a result, we have uh, Democrats claiming victory and Republicans going not so not so fast. What's the reality on okay, it? Okay, so there, there are two things here. Okay. There's a continuing resolution, a big spending bill. That got passed by the Senate. And the, and the House then passed it. Right. We now have money through, through the end of the year. Most of the, the, uh, the sequester, however, is infused into this, into this uh, uh, continuing resolution. So most of the, 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 the pain that is in the sequester, the sort of automatic across-the-board spending cuts, is, is incorporated into the so-called CR, continuing resolution. There's some additional flexibility for the executive branch so that it isn't quite as arbitrary, but it is still a big deal and quite difficult. It would still be great to substitute some of the cuts that are in that continuing resolution in, with, with a bigger, broader deal. The chances of that, not great. Now, at the same, right on the heels of that, literally this later in the week, the Senate, for the first time in four years, passed a what's called a budget resolution, and and this is something we've talked about before. The, a budget resolution, if it's if it's agreed to by the Senate and the House, puts a ceiling on spending and a floor on revenues, and it tells you how it will get there. Right, and that's that's what the, the House has already done, and the Senate has done this week. And what was interesting about the Senate was it's the first time in years that the Senate has <laughs> dealt with a totally open process where more than 70 amendments were considered. 
some of them with five minutes of explanation, a minute of explanation, and votes, and so on. It's the way the Senate used to do things and hasn't for a long time. And so this is kind of new territory for some of these territory for, for some of these new guys, absolutely. Now, what the Senate did was pass, pass a resolution that is built on a foundation very, very different from what the House has done. Right. What, what the Senate relies on is about a trillion dollars in additional revenue and not a huge amount on the spending side, almost nothing from the entitlements. And, and this is largely based on the proposal put out there by Patty Murray of Washington. Well, she she came she up is, with the baseline. She's the chairman with uh, obviously a lot of input from the, from the White House and others. Uh, we're going to get the president's budget next week, and we'll see how close the president's proposals um, are uh, link up to what uh, what the the Senate in a 51 to 49 vote passed um, in the early hours of Saturday morning. Saturday morning. So, but remember, this is a budget resolution that would be for the year beginning next October 1st, right? Through the following September 30th for that, fiscal year. 2014. Right. Now, Denise, we have the Democrats running their Senate budget proposal. We also have one put up by uh, Chairman Paul Ryan from Wisconsin in the House budget proposal, and there is uh, quite a bit of separation between the two. What's your take on the House resolution? There are a lot of cuts in there. Really? (laughs) A lot of programs that are being cut. Who, who are some of the Who are some of the big losers in the in the uh, House budget proposal? Food aid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I mean, you, we we have on one side we talk about the Senate has revenue based budget proposal. We have the Ryan proposal, which is largely cuts and spending cut based. Uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, conference. Uh, an interesting budget conference between the two uh, chambers, and we still haven't seen the presidential budget request yet. Right, which is why I'm going to put a plug in for everybody to learn a quick civics lesson. Okay. If you do not know who your member of Congress is on the House side or the Senate side, you can always find this information on the Library of Congress website, which is thomas.loc.gov. And the reason I'm going to encourage all of you to figure this out now is because the wheeling and dealing that is about to start is going to impact everybody. So if you have a particular program that you like, it is time for you to start calling your member now. Because as a former staffer, as as both of the gentlemen are um, sitting next to me, what we can tell you is that it's going to be a give and take. If you want something, that you're going to have to give something. So if you like your program, for example, for me, it's food aid, then you need to figure out where the other cuts are going to come from. Well, we we do have a situation, Bob Hines, where Paul Ryan's put up something, but the the one key word that we don't see a lot of in either of the budget proposals is offset. There's not a lot of offsets in either version. Is that something that's going to be a, a, a stalemate or at least a road bump in uh, the talks in conference? Well. Understand that these two documents, these two resolutions, House has passed it. it the, the House resolution could not pass the Senate in um, forever. The reverse is true of the Senate budget resolution. This, these are two negotiating positions which will probably be discussed throughout the summer. 
I mean, I think it's going to take a long time. I don't know. I, my guess is that the president's budget resolution will uh, budget proposal will look a lot like the Senate's. So basically, we're going to have we're going to have a lot of discussions, the same kind of discussions we have been having for three or four years, uh, almost ad infinitum, with with uh, with uh, Bowles uh, Simpson, Simpson with uh, super committees and super this is and that and gangs of four. We have been trying to find a solution that would be a budget that you know going forward that would both raise revenues we need and and begin to cut back on the programs that are out of control, which is fundamentally health care and social security. Uh, and it's uh, though that problem is not going to go away. We're not going to solve it between now and September 30th, but we're going to have to get some kind of a budget resolution or uh, as we, we are talking about, as Alan was talking about earlier, we're now living under a, a continuing resolution and it wouldn't be 100% surprising to anybody in this, at this table right now that we would be on a continuing resolution at the beginning of the fiscal year. Uh, Alan Moore, when, when, we, when we look at going to conference, uh, and again, not having the presidential budget request, traditionally the presidential budget requests have largely grown government in the area of 8 to 10% annually. Is, is OMB and the White House wary of that type of growth in a presidential budget request this year? Are they going to be cognizant of the past four and a half years of fiscal turmoil that we've been in when they put this forward? Well, one of the, one of the reasons we don't have a presidential budget yet is because they didn't know what the baseline was going to look like. What, was, what kind of a sequester deal got worked out? I'll be very interested to see how in the document they deal with the the, the issue of sequester. sequester and reduced spending for the current fiscal year because a budget for 2014 should reflect actual spending in 2013 and it wasn't until the beginning of last week that we solved that and that's still subject to, to change. Having said that, we don't have to have a budget resolution. I will be flabbergasted <laughs> if we have a budget resolution that both houses agree to. What was new this time, <coughs> for the first time in four years, the Senate passed a version. The House has passed them, the Senate has not. When we talk about conference, let's be, let, let, let's, let's be realistic here. I do not see the House Budget Committee and the Senate Budget Committee sitting down and hashing this stuff out. I see the, 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 the chairman and possibly the ranking member from, from both the Senate and the House getting together and talking, a lot of this is done through staff. Is there anything we could do to come together? These two sides are so far apart that I think the chances of actually getting them together are about one or two percent. Really? Almost impossible. Yes. Denny Scrub, though, I mean, we're talking. I mean, we're talking about in the traditional budget process that we used to see going back four and a half, five, six years ago, where we would see, you know, members of both committees coming in, sitting down and conferring and coming up with some sort of mutually agreed to, painful for all sides deal. Has the politics gotten so partisan that that, as Alan's saying, is not going to really be a reality now? Well, I, I, I agree with what Alan's saying, and I would take it one step further. It's not just the partisan politics. It's the fact that you have programs that are going to be cut. So it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. 
it's now going to be the interests themselves that are going to be fighting against each other. So that adds an extra layer of complexity that is going to encourage people to head towards the CR instead of forcing them to define the cuts that they want. Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's get our terms yeah. right here because because in the last four years, we've not had a budget resolution. Correct. These, these grand parameters. Right. We have had appropriations bills. Well, correct. We have not finished the appropriations bills, and when we start a new fiscal year and don't have all the appropriations bills done, we all of a sudden have to do what's called a continuing resolution. Correct. But we don't have to have a budget resolution to pass appropriations bills, and and we we don't jump to a – we would normally pass appropriations bills, oh, in the late summer and into September. We may still. I am not predicting that, but we can do that. We don't need a budget resolution to do that. Once It's only after September 30th that we get into this – need to pass a continuing resolution, which is an appropriations bill, which provides real money for real programs to carry out government. So there's 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 still ample room and time, not that it's easy, for the president to get involved and for, if you will, a grand bargain to take shape. It would it would not likely be, although it could be in the form of a budget resolution. It would more likely be a broader agreement in which uh, the, the the parameters of revenue and spending would be agreed to, like a budget resolution, and then turned back to the committees of the Congress to work out the details. We don't work out the details in a budget resolution. It own the only thing binding, the only thing binding is the floor on revenue and the ceiling on spending, and we're not even going to have that. Bob Hines. If the president's budget contains some of the things that he has suggested in his conversations with the Republicans and Such others as? on Capitol Hill, uh, there is a change in the uh, CPI with respect to uh, Social Security. And he's made some legitimate offers, and I think they're significant. If he were to do that, I would I would at least double Allen's percentage that it's possible, one or two percent, to get a deal. But Bob, we're, we're now, wait, okay. And I think I don't think that it's necessarily going to happen. But I think there's an opportunity for the president to do something that he has been doing privately, do it more or less publicly, which will put pressure quite frankly, on both sides. One of the things that's beginning, I think, for people to figure out, that the uh, the sequester, you know, oh, my God, you know, the military's getting cut, oh, my God, this, that, and the other thing, and the Democrats, boy, aren't they wonderful, they saved all these programs that, that, that so, many, so many of the citizens of the United States get benefits from. But, we, but they protected Social Security and, and health care. Well, those are programs for the older folks. How about the people who are younger? And it's all their programs that are being cut. I suspect that maybe some Democrats are beginning to figure out that they may have really boxed themselves into a corner here a little bit. Now, and I don't think the Republicans thought it that way. I think they just stumbled into this. But the fact of the matter is that there is a real situation where – 
we are about to get to a situation where the sequester is going to get tougher and get it's more and more Democrats are going to see, and I think the president does, that they need to make some, you know, to make some moves, which will require the Republicans to put on the table finally what they actually want to do. But one of the things we haven't talked about, though, is that in 2014, we still have a big ticket item in the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Where are we dealing with the balance in that? That's not something we've seen in previous annual spending in the federal government. How are they going to be able to balance that out? Lord knows. Alan Moore. Well, we're all laughing. The law is not fully implemented until, until 2004. No, but there's an implementation aspect of part of the Affordable Care Act that has money attached to it. It's not big money yet. It, beget, it gets to be big, big money in 2014, but there's two parts to it. We spend a lot of money, and there's a lot of taxes in the Affordable Care Act to pay for all the new costs. It is a massive expansion of both spending and taxes in the hope that the whole country will be better off and that we will be able to constrain health spending. That's a major controversy. One of the one of the more controversial pieces of, of Paul Ryan's budget proposal, uh, budget resolution in the House, <laughs> is that he assumes that we repeal Obamacare, we repeal the uh, the <laughs> the Affordable Care Act, which which will not happen. And he, he, there's a lot of savings associated on paper if you do that, but he at the same time assumes that all the taxes, about a trillion dollars over 10 years, that are part of the Affordable Care Act to pay for all of its costs, he assumes that revenue continues to come in. So he wants his cake and eats it too. He saves about a trillion over here on spending, but he picks up the trillion on revenue. That's what helps him get to balance. But Denise, Denise Krepp, I mean, when when we talk about Affordable Care Act and we talk about the revenue generated from that, does that not go into the pot that we would largely look at, the same pot as Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, as non-discretionary spending? I think it will, but let me go back to something you just talked about a second ago. Okay. The costs are coming now as far as the implementation of the health care. Uh, the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. Whatever you want to call it. And it's coming to the small businesses. I had a fascinating com- uh, conversation with my optometrist last week. Uh, you know, I, I went in, thought I was going to go get my eyes checked, and then what I ended up saying as I blindly looking at him is him typing all this stuff in, into the computer. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be compliant with Obama health care. What are you talking about? He said, well, I'm being told now that I have to type all my stuff in and I have to do all of this stuff so that I can be compliant. But, oh, by the way, while I'm doing this, I'm being told by the vendors, here's who's making the money out of this, is the vendors who are selling the software to be compliant with Obamacare. They're now saying, they're putting, you know, they're saying, we've got all these extra charges for you. Not only do we have these extra charges, but we have these extra requirements. My optometrist kept going, hey, wait a second. All I'm trying to do is be you know, compliant with the law, and you're telling me I have all these extra costs. So the costs are coming. They're coming now. And what people are finding, at least in the small businesses, how am I going to recoup the costs? And that's where people are really going to focus on it. How do I recoup the costs for what I've already paid to be compliant with the law? Nor, nor will they hire additional people if 
these, you know, there's these, these 30 million people who are supposed to be covered by Obamacare, and uh, it's going to cost money, and I think it's going to slow down, you know, the recovery. Right? But, but Alan, Alan Moore, these, these are two big points where you're talking about, A, additional revenue going out of small businesses that is largely going to go into either the vendor's pockets, the insurance company's pockets, or into non-discretionary spending. At the same time, if they're not going to be hiring people, that's less revenue coming into the pocket. Okay, we're, we're, so we're, we're mixing a couple of things. We're missing, mixing the... It's what we do on this show. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. makes for good radio. Well, no, but it's confusing. Because, I, all right. Because, because you've got, you got people in the medical professions who are, who are facing up to the new requirements, which are making them less efficient, and meaning they're either going to have to work more or charge more to 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 stay steady, and I've had experiences with my with my own doctor, and that's that's the the provider piece, the sort of one of these hidden pieces. And then there's small businesses who are saying, "Whoa, if I can stay under 50 employees, I I I don't have to deal with all of this stuff." So people are figuring out how to game the system. When I'm talking about the the real costs not coming online yet, I'm talking about the hundreds of billions of dollars, not the thousands of dollars here or the tens of thousands there that people are beginning to see and try to prepare for. I'm talking about the billions of subsidies for expanded Medicaid and for subsidizing insurance for the 30 million people. That's the big money. That's the government money. I'm not talking about these very real impacts on individuals. But it's these small impacts. No, 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 no. If you're talking about the government, you're talking about the trillion dollars of costs that the government has to take on and the trillion dollars in new revenue that is part of the Affordable Care Act. That's the federal, the primary federal concern. That doesn't mean there aren't political concerns and unintended consequences that are very real for individual businesses. But as far as government is concerned, the federal government, the big costs, the re- some of the revenues have already started creeping in to, and, and uh, to get a head start to try, to try to make this thing affordable, even though it arguably is not. Um, from the federal government standpoint, that stuff is the stuff that kicks in in 2014, and that's scaring everybody, and that allows people like Ryan, on the one hand, to sort of play his game. I'm going to save the spending by repeal, but we'll keep the revenue coming in that, that, that as you correctly point out, kind of goes into the general pot. But the whole idea is we're going to bring in this amount of revenue to pay for this amount of cost and more or less keep things equal. Um, you're not going to be able to have it both ways in, in, in the political system. But, but that's what I talk about when I talk about the federal hit, notwithstanding all these little hits on, on businesses, well, providers, et cetera. Well, legitimately, though, Denise, it, it's these little hits, though. I mean, not, not, not saying anything contrary to what Alan's saying. Alan's correct. But it's the little hits. It's those little pockets of revenue that has continued to elude the federal government and having the revenue generation issues that we have now. To further exacerbate that through budgets that play a little smoke and mirrors deals with we'll keep the revenues, but we're going to repeal the act that actually generates the revenues or 
continued government growth in the instance of stimulating an economy that needs stimulation, but the government stimulation really hasn't worked in the past, at some point, somebody up on the hill is going to have to come up with the reality saying, whoa, time out. One does not begot the other. Where does that, where does that compromise come? After they finish up with the rest of the budget. But Bob, somebody's going to have to look at this in order for there to be confidence in the way that the government operates and continues to spend. I agree, but look, you know, right now we're talking about here. A few months from now, we're going to be back at the same old place called the debt ceiling. Now, does anybody here, we all do, remember the kind of problems that causes? Right. And we are probably, what, three months away, I would think, maybe maybe four. It'll be sometime, you know, it'll be sometime in the late summer, early fall, that we will be up against our debt ceiling again. And the same kind of problems that we've been talking about here, the financial difficulties of funding the government, the programs that have been snipped, you know, cut back by the sequester, and all the problems that we are going to face are going to be renewed again because what's going to happen unless, and I say unless, and here it goes back to the 2% that Alan says and maybe 5% I say if, if the president is, is helpful, unless we start solving our problems, we're going to be right back where the Democrats say we had to have another $2 trillion, $3 trillion in, in deficit in, 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 you know, so we can fund our deficit. And the Republicans are going to say, fine. What are you going to cut? You know, tell us what you're going to, how you're going to save some money, and then maybe we'll give you some revenue. We've already given you six hundred million dollars, a billion dollars of revenue earlier this year, and we're not going to give you another six or eight hundred billion dollars until you tell us what you're going to cut. And the Democrats are going to say, "Well, we don't think we're going to cut anything. We like what we got," and that's going to happen in about four months. Alan Moore. Yeah, actually, actually, I think it's the end of May or, or in June that we run into the debt limit bill. Let me let me clarify too. Um, but I, they always I, but I, they always can play with it. Move what it. I, and and I think you can play with it up until early June is about as far as it can go. But yeah. we'll, it we'll, we'll see. It is another action forcing event, no question. When I say that I think there's about a one percent chance, I'm talking about the House and the Senate on their own coming together on a budget resolution. I think that is a total non-starter, and we don't need it to continue to fund government and appropriate money. To get the grand bargain, though, that's where you have to have the president. And I think the chances are still, oh, maybe in the 20 to 25% that if he will go out and do what he has said privately to certain members that he is willing to do, which is take this issue to the public and say, folks, here's the situation we're in on our spending side here's what's going on with Social Security, here's what's going on with Medicare, here's what's going on with Medicaid, here's what I see happening if we don't take some, make some hard decisions over the next 10 years. Not immediately, because we're in a very delicate, soft position at the moment, but over the longer term, we've got to make hard choices, hard decisions. I want some revenue into the pot, and I'm willing to make some hard choices on Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, but you and the, the American public needs to understand why this matters and why it's important. That's the piece that's been missing. And there are different ways if they could get a grand bargain, 
to actually do it. It doesn't have to be through a budget resolution. It could be through a variety of things. I'm still but, hopeful that we have a chance but this, of getting the grand bargain. But, but Denise, this just-in-time funding of government spending is getting all to a vast majority of the American electorate. At some point, there's going to be a fault line that says, Congress, we've got to really make the hard decisions now and, and fund us to either get us closer to a balanced budget or at least have enough foresight to see where the, spun, the spending goes for us to create enough revenue generation to sustain government spending. Where's that point? I don't think we've come there yet, but, but I think we're, we're heading there. Uh, it, it, and a lot of it goes down to what Alan was, was talking about on the economic side. Um, but the other part of the conversation comes to the generational warfare that I think is about to occur over programs. You have a, uh, a younger population that is more progressive on liberal thought, but you have an older population that is consistent in voting and has a very powerful lobbying group, actually lobbying groups, plural. So I think we're about to be uh, heading into is young versus old, black versus white, um, and we're going to be facing questions of who has the stronger lobbying issues and how do they get the ear of Congress when they make these decisions. Bob Hines, last word. Uh, hopefully. The president appears, he's been talking to Republicans on the Hill, first time in, in his administration, really, and, he's, and I think I, I commend him completely. I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Uh, he has the bully pulpit. It is his to use or not use. The more he uses it on this subject, the better off the country is going to be because there are solutions that, that, that have to be proposed, and if the president can propose some things on his side that hurt some of his friends and make – and the Republicans – can then be said to what's your salute, what are you going to offer? And they're going to have to say what they're going to, what they're willing to do. Right now, you know, both sides uh, on Capitol Hill and at the White House are all saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about those sometime in the future in some way. We'll get somewhere. But they have never said what they're willing to do. We are getting to the point where we're not going to be able to say the can can be pu pushed down the road any farther. We've kicked it so far, it's fallen apart. So we either have to get a new can or we have to solve the problem. And I suspect that the, if, if the president follows up on what he has been doing over the last few, few weeks with the, uh, in, uh, on Capitol Hill and down in, in the White House, with Republicans bringing them down, talking to them, I think that's excellent. Bringing some Democrats down, too, to make sure they know what's going on, what he's saying to the Republicans, so nobody is surprised. I think that's the best thing. That's the best work a president can do domestically when we're in the kind of situation we are today, and I commend him for it. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. When we come back, it's going to be kind of a free-for-all because we went a little bit over on this segment. So we'll let the dais decide what we're going to talk about in our last segment before Tell Me a Story. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, 
Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings. Famous campfire wings. One pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for our last and final segment of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, okay, well, we talked during the break, and they want to talk about both immigration and guns. The, the reality is, is that just when you thought there was nothing else that could divide Congress by partisanship any more than the fiscal issues, oh, we've got gun control and immigration issues. Uh, this week, uh, we saw several maneuvers on the gun control side. Uh, we saw a we, we saw Harry Reid and uh, Diane Feinstein push forward some Senate gun control bills, which originally included assault weapons, and that has since been taken back. Uh, we are starting to see some movement in gun control legislation moving forward. Bob Hines, this seems to be the new big ticket item on the Hill outside of fiscal spending issues. Uh, is is there a way that we could see some consensus on gun control coming out of both the House and the Senate? I I think I think the Senate can pass a bill that contains uh, 
you know, univer almost universal uh, checks, so that we would have at least some idea. That would mean that, you know, the gun the gun sales at uh, sh at uh, shows would uh, it would close the gun show loophole. It. it would close the loophole on mm -hmm. private sales, and that would be a big plus. It uh, would be. It wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't solve all the problems, obviously. But it's the kind of a thing that need be done. We should have been doing it a year years ago. I'm pretty sure it can pass the Senate. I'm not sure it can pass the House. Uh, Denise Krep, you haven't been that far removed from the House side. How strong is the NRA lobby when it comes to uh, instant checks and global checks? Justin, you know that I worked on a, uh, a project when I was on the House committee uh, called the Transportation Worker Identification Credential. Right. And so I want to remind folks, both in the House and the Senate, that they have already mandated background checks for transportation workers three times. Not right. only did they do that, but President Bush signed the legislation mandating background checks. So if we can have background checks for two million transportation workers, not only background checks, but a database that holds their information, then I would say that there could be a database and there could be a background check for people who own guns. But, I just but, remind folks that. Okay, but, but also remind yourself that there are those on, on the right side, namely the NRA, that says, well, wait a minute, being a transportation worker is not a constitutional right. Uh, owning a gun is a constitutional right. Yes. Uh, how do you offset that? And I would remind them that if you can require people to apply for a car and you can require that they get training and you can require that they hold a driver's license to drive a car and, uh-oh, their names are in a database, then surely you could also require them to have a background check for a gun. But, uh, Alan Moore, go ahead. Yeah, the NRA is not invoking the constitutional provision on on background checks. They are in, they 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 did invoke constitutional uh, Second Amendment rights with regard to the assault weapon ban, the proposed assault weapon ban, and that is out of the bill. And uh, the assault weapon ban is dead. Whether that's a good thing or not, people have very strong feelings about. But the fact of the matter is, as Harry Reid yeah. said, he might have 40 votes, and that was it. It's not going to be in the bill. The bill would come to the Senate, and Diane Feinstein, who has been the major proponent, she can offer an assault weapon ban and a limitation on, on the, the, the cartridges uh, as separate amendments. Uh, it is not expected that they will pass. The, the, the two things that will for certain pass are toughening up of the gun trafficking provisions where you have straw purchasers who go out, buy a gun, and then sell it to a friend who could not pass a background check. They are really talking about ramping up the the, uh, the penalties for that, and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of opposition to that. Although the devil is always in the details. There's also uh, enhanced school safety as part of of the bill that's come forward. The universal background checks is is fascinating because on the one hand the public supports the idea. Again, the devil is in the details, and there was a group of people that involved some pretty conservative members, including Tom Coburn of of, of Oklahoma who was willing to sign on to a universal background check requirement. The problem was and continues to be what kind of record you have to keep of any and every background check that ever occurs. If you're selling among family members and so on, willing, part, willing 
friendly buyers? Do you have to keep a, a record permanently? So far, the Democrats have said, yes, you do. And there is no Republican or maybe only one who has said, okay, yes, you absolutely have to. That's what they have to work out. They got to get Tom Coburn, who carries a lot of credibility, back to the table. And he and and Joe Mankin, the the Democrat from West Virginia, who's got a perfect voting record with the NRA, those are the two guys who could work something out. My guess is if they do, it it, it will soften that heavy-duty requirement. But I think that's the only way that gets included. And, 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 and that's really the, the, the challenge right now. In the meantime, you got Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, and Mike Lee from Utah saying, hey, we're, watch out, we're going to filibuster any bill that we think infringes on Second Amendment rights. Well, I think those guys stumbled onto a, a, a modest winner when they filibustered uh, this question about drones in America, even though I think it was a nonsense issue. I think it worked for them. I think this is a loser for them, they need to be really, really careful. Okay. I, I would, Go ahead, Denise well, Crap. First of all, I, I, I would encourage the NRA to pay more attention to who their audience is. I mean, one of the things that was shocking to me this week was to hear that they were doing robocalls to residents of Newtown, Connecticut, to tell them to ask the representative to vote against changes. So, you know, the NRA needs to focus on its issues, and focusing on the issues means that if you want to protect the right to bear arms, do that. But does everybody need to own an automatic weapon with multiple clips? Absolutely not. And I want to just tell a quick story real fast. You know, my father was a, a Vietnam veteran, and he kept shaking his head every time he heard the NRA saying that we needed all these multiple clips, we needed all of that, because what they learned in Vietnam was that if you had too many clips with too many bullets in them, the guns were jamming. So if we could learn that in Vietnam... Why would you want to own a gun with a big clip that had all these bullets that was likely to jam here in the United States? Interesting point. Bob Hines. Uh, moving past the Senate, and I, I hope they're able to pass legislation that has a you know good gun control check. That, that, that may be all they can do, but if that is worth doing. It is. Uh, the House may be even tougher. Uh, the, the Tea Party is uh, is, is we, very strong about this, and, and it may very well be more difficult in the House and the Senate, and it ain't easy in the Senate. But it, but it, it strikes me as odd because a report came out today uh, that Mark Kelly, the, the husband of former Arizona Representative Gabby Giffords, who was herself the victim of, gun, of needless gun violence, uh, but both him and Gabby Giffords are self-proclaimed gun owners. Yeah. Uh, Mark Kelly went to go buy an AR-15. The gun shop refused to sell him the AR-15 based on his sensible gun control legislation maneuvering here in Washington, D.C. It seems to me that the <laughs> gun control, the anti-gun control advocates can't get out of their own way. You've got the NRA who says at one time, several years ago, we, we, we support instant checks. Now saying, oh, universal checks are horrible. Yeah. Is there a conflict here, Alan Moore? <laughs> okay, my understanding of the Mark Kelly situation was he went to buy a $1,200 semi-automatic um, uh, big gun, one of the controversial so-called assault weapons, um, and then 
there's a background check that occurs. You got to wait a day or two before you pick it up. Right. In the meantime, he let it be known that he was going to go buy one of these things to show how easy it was to buy. And the gun shop said, you know something? We can only sell it to you if it's for your own use, not for some other purpose. We are not going to sell it to you. We're going to take the value. We're going to, we're going to auction it off for charity, however, and we will pay for the gun. So it, there, there was, there was a, it, it wasn't that his rights were, were being impinged upon. He was trying to use his his fame. Well, the details are still coming out about that. That's right. But but it, let, let, let's let's face it. He's legal. He wants to buy a gun. He can go buy a gun. We um, we have a caller. Caller in the eight one three area code. You're on with backroom politics. Yes, thank you. My name's Gary. I'm calling from Tampa, Florida. Yeah, Gary. Um, yes, the uh, the gunshine state they call it. <laughs> um, Boasts the uh, lowest. Uh, I think we just got the lowest actual gun fatality rate in the nation, uh, but we have the most uh, gun permits in the country. Um, I think, you know, one of the previous callers was talking about um, the size of the magazines and the size of the clips and how many rounds and so forth. Um, and there's a lot of reference that's being made to assault rifles. And I'm, I'm hearing, I heard one of the previous callers, uh, the gal was talking about her father was in Vietnam and was talking about, you know, these weapons jamming and so forth. Well, the quality of the weapons have drastically changed, and the the, the uh, technology used, or the ma- manufacturing processes used for the for the clips and the magazines are a lot better. So it really depends on the quality of the gun you're talking about. You know, the jamming. Um, you know, I I I'm really more of a pistol shooter. I I fire a nine millimeter. I also have a 357 Magnum. Um, I have a Glock 17, and it's never jammed once. And I use um, usually 32-round uh, magazines on the range only because <clears throat> preloading for the range is far better because, you know, if you're using a smaller magazine like a 10-round or a 17-round, which is what they come with, you know, when you're at the range and you're shooting, you got to stop. you got to pull the magazine out. You have to reload the magazine, which is really rather cumbersome. Um, takes a little bit, you know, especially as that spring starts to tighten up towards the end. And if you preload, you know, two, three, four, 32-round mags before you go shooting, you don't have to waste time on the range, which you pay for. Um, you know, so that's one, that's one of many reasons why people like um, higher capacity magazines, uh, especially when it comes to target practice, and with them with them paying for time on the range, it takes away their loading time uh, on the range. Um, you know, the people who want to use larger capacity. Oh, I'm just and I got ahead of myself a little bit. Um, an AR-15 is not an assault rifle. Okay, the the an AR the an M6 assault, assault rifles are essentially illegal. I mean, you can. You can own an assault rifle, but you have to get a Cat 3 license, which, good luck, okay? You, I mean, the application fee is like $200. They're going to do a thorough, and I mean the extended background investigation on you, and you better have a damn good reason for owning it. Otherwise, you're not going to have it. Um, it's, it. It's very hard to get a hold of. An M16 is an automatic. That's kind of like the sister, of the sister rifle to the AR-15, which is more of the consumer semi-automatic rifle is what it's categorized with assault weapon features on it, meaning, you know, the the stock that's going around it 
the plastic parts and so forth that give it that look and feel of an assault rifle. But really, it's a it's a selective it's a selective fire. It's a you know single round pop pop pop, just like a nine millimeter um, or any other semi-automatic weapon. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions that are going on. People you know are throwing out you know the assault rifles. Well, none of these are assault rifles. These are semi-automatic weapons. Um, AR-15s became very popular in the media. Uh, very popular because of the media. Um, really, just an, an AR-15 is not does not have a lot of kick. It's extremely easy to fire. It's lightweight, portable, um, and it's the choice amongst hunters. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's it's a very very easy rifle to handle. Um, Gary, uh, Gary, I, I, Gary, I want to ask a question. Do you, do you currently have a uh, an ATF federal firearms license? An ATF federal firearms license? Yes. I have a uh I have a um I live in the state of Florida. I have a concealed okay. weapons permit. Right. And yeah, and I have and, and my guns are, are, are registered. I went through a background check to receive both of my guns in the three day waiting period. Does does the state of Florida, Florida identify what would classify as an assault weapon? Um the, the state of Florida, to the best of my knowledge, would classify an assault weapon as something along the lines of, of, of an M sixteen, something that has an automatic fire feature. That's an assault weapon. So in other words, if I have you know, a, a massive clip on an M sixteen and I have that in automatic mode, which our troops, you know, rarely rarely do. They they, they usually always have it in selective fire mode. You can you could change it. But you know, you're just talking about one trigger pull and that gun's just unloading. You know, you're just you're you're pulling the trigger. You got da 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 da. I mean, these these weapons are are capable. Some of them are capable of going, you know, 700 to 1,000 rounds a minute, <laughs> which is which is insanity. You know, uh, you would never be able to do that with an AR-15 or even a nine millimeter because you're just every 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 you know trigger pull, you're shooting around. Well, okay, Gary, just Gary, just out of curiosity. Um, the AR-15, and and I'm talking about it from past experience, uh, being in both the military and in law enforcement. The AR-15 has a fully automatic feature, which is available to law enforcement. I mean, it's manufactured with an automatic capable firing pin. If that's that not correct? a civilian, that's not civilian grade though. You you and I can't go into a gun shop and buy one of those. But. The, was was the would you agree that the AR-15 was designed not as a sporting rifle but more of a tactical rifle used by military and law enforcement? No, I, I would say it's more of a sporting rifle. I would say the look and the feel that it has that look to it, if you will, of you know with the cosmetic stock you could put on it. But really, it's no, and and, it, and it's completely inappropriate for home and uh, for. Uh, Home protection in many ways. I mean, I, I, that's why I prefer uh, a nine millimeter because you know if you're talking about unless you have a, a large home, if you have an average size home, if you do have an intruder and you need to get around a corner or something, or you know, you, you know, handling the AR-15 is a little, is a little, uh, you know, it, it looks real menacing, but really it's not going to, you know, do any any more damage than say a nine millimeter with a critical defense round in it. You know, and uh, you can get off as many rounds in a nine millimeter pistol as you could an AR-15. It's right. just for, I mean, for accuracy and for sporting, 
it's a very, very good semi-automatic rifle because, like I said, it's lightweight. It doesn't have as much kick as some of the other guns do, so it's easier to aim. So right. if you're hunting or sports shooting, it's just you know a preferable for people who do that, which I right. really don't. Well, Gary, we appreciate your call. We hope you'll uh, listen again. Thanks a lot All right, for calling no in. No. Uh, anyway, interesting, interesting take uh, from out there in the public. I mean, everybody. I mean, Florida is obviously a very pro-gun, very proactive uh, sporting rifle area. But we're going to continue to watch the gun debate. We'll take up immigration next week. But it's now time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story where we talk about news, innuendo, shameless plugs, buzz going around the Beltway. It is whatever we can do to scoop the media. Bob, tell me a story. Well, what I I told you my story earlier, and, and that, that I I guess I just don't have another one. But what I said earlier is I think maybe the most important thing that the president did in the Middle East was putting the Israeli and Turkish relationship back on friendship floor. Talking with the president and the prime minister was vitally important. As much as it, any one thing he could have possibly done, that's it. Because it's so important that Turkey start playing a real playing in the game of the Middle East and trying to help solve the problems as a Muslim country, which is a democracy, and it's it it is a model for so much else. And it, Israel needs their friendship; they have it back and. They they messed it up, but they got it back now, and that's very very good for us and for everybody else in the Middle East. Very good, Denise Kreft, tell me a story. Muriel Bowser announced her candidacy to uh, be mayor up here in D.C. I think that's going to be a very interesting race to watch over the next couple of months because the current mayor hasn't decided, or at least is not saying publicly, whether or not he is going to be running. Muriel is not the only person who is interested in running, and given the uh, upcoming election, we could be some, seeing some differences in the D.C. City Council. Those differences are reflecting what the D.C. Uh, population is looking like, so keep to Washington, Washington Post just endorsed Patrick Mara for City Council, a Republican for wow. City Council. Changes coming here in D.C. Yeah. By the way, Alan Moore, tell me a story. All right, everybody uh, around the country read a few weeks ago that as part of... Wait, the- wait, 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 Bob Menendez? No, Bob nope. Menendez? No, oh, come on. Uh, oh, you're breaking the wind streak. Uh, what the hell? But, uh, All right, go tell me a story. I think, don't worry, Bob is the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, well, tell me a story anyway. He'll be back. Um, but but uh, uh, in, in the whole lead-up to sequester and the immediate aftermath, the White House got a lot of press, not 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 much of it any good, and we talked about it here, for canceling White House tours, yes. suspending White House tours. And and then some talk came, well, gee, might have to suspend the, the traditional Easter egg roll, which will occur next Monday, the day after Easter, at the White House. You know, all the people invited said, better check. I'm going to tell you today why the Easter egg roll will not be canceled. Why? It will not be canceled because the whole argument in White House tours and the Easter egg roll is secret service costs. The secret service costs somewhere, and it's bizarre, somewhere between twenty dollars and $50,000 a week. You'd think they could be a little more precise. Now, I would have said maybe it'll, you know, to, to keep the, the heat on, we'll cancel the Easter egg roll. Here's the problem. 
this week, the president's two daughters are down in the Bahamas for spring break with their with their well, a bunch of their friends and schoolmates. What is the president thinking? He can pay for their tickets and for their hotel, but they have to have Secret Service protection. It's estimated that the cost of protecting the presidential daughters is well over $100,000 for a week in the Bahamas. There is no way that the president is going to allow an over hundred grand to be spent on his daughters in the, bah in the Bahamas while shutting down the Easter egg roll, the, 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 the Easter egg roll, I'll bet anybody 10,000 something or others that maybe Cyprus, uh, the, the, the future Cyprus currency, I don't know, but there is no way. It's the, it's one of the dumbest moves. I've never Amazing. begrudged the president golf outings, right. vacations. This was really not a, smart. A poorly timed wow. uh, decision. By the way, while you were giving your story, the University of Indiana basketball team just walked right in front of Shelley's. Uh, go Hoosiers, I guess. Go that might be a sign. Sweet 16. Sweet 16 here in D.C. Apparently, they're going to go have their down in Hamilton. Hey, um, by the way, uh, my story is, too, real quick, uh, Michelle Bachman, Congresswoman out of Minnesota, got herself into a little bit of deep water. There is an investigation brewing on misuse of campaign funds because a staffer blew the whistle. That's going to be something here in the next couple of weeks. Keep your eye on that. Second, in a strange, odd development overseas, my friends in Westminster and the British government have decided to privatize the search and rescue aviation capabilities of the British government. The Royal Air Force, the Royal Navy, and Her Majesty's Coast Guard will no longer be doing search and rescue operations. It will be done by a private company after a $1.6 billion contract was signed with a Scottish, Scottish helicopter company, which basically says, hey, the old Coast Guard mantra used to be, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Well, if it's privatized, you really don't have to go out. So good luck to you guys. Uh, oh, Alan Moore's got one thing. One quick thing, a little a shout out to a uh, senator from South Dakota, Tim Johnson, who announced this afternoon that he will not run. That's right. In, in 2014, uh, he's the man who had a stroke, was out for about a year, got reelected. He's been the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. Quality, thoughtful guy. He will not run in 2014. Big opportunity for the Republicans if they can nominate a winner. Somebody who can win. Yeah, no kidding. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, on behalf of Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Alan Moore, I am your host, Radio's Justin Russell. We'll be here in two weeks. Uh, two, next week Next week will be a best-of show. We'll be back in two weeks here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. The place to be, even when we're a best-of show. Very good, Bob. Way to go. <laughs> This has been Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. We will see you in two weeks. By the way, happy Passover. Happy Easter to everybody. Have a great week. I'll take care. Bye-bye.